Hey everyone, this is Chelsea Schaefer, and this is The Score, the Team Roping Journal's venture into podcasting. This is the Thanksgiving week edition of The Score. Uh, We are kind of getting deep into this season of podcasts. We're going to take a break after the NFR for just a few weeks. Um, But before we do that, we have so much planned. This week, you get to listen to Denny Gentry, who is the godfather of the sport of team roping. He is the director of roping operations for Active Interest Media, and he is uh, he is just kind of a beacon, a guiding light for the sport. His foresight has been unmatched, absolutely, when it comes to the business side of things, and he is always there to give me kind of a nudge one way or another in, in the way that the magazine needs to to work out. He's definitely somebody who is helpful and thorough. And I hope that all comes across in this interview. You know, he's at a very unique juncture in his career with sort of beginning to transition away from day-to-day operations in the next year. And him and his wife, Connie, his business partner, she has been just absolutely phenomenal, a force to be reckoned with in this sport. And this interview kind of will just pull back the curtain a little bit on Denny's decision making and the way his very fascinating mind operates. So with the finale coming up, you probably all, if you're a World Series roper, you have read your draw, you know where your stalls are, you've you're getting looking forward to another huge, massive record breaking finale. We are too. Denny is too, and he took a break in his insanely busy schedule right before Vegas to yeah, like I said, pull back the curtain a little bit, give you some insight into what goes on day to day at the World Series, and then some big picture things. A look back on his career. We'll talk about his theories on and the direction of the sport and where things are going. We'll talk about some. We'll ha- tell some funny stories about things that have happened over the years. So, if you're traveling for Thanksgiving, or if you're on your way back from the holidays, or on your way to the holidays with your family. Um, I hope you all take a chance and, and listen listen to this and uh, just step back and think about all the massive changes in the sport in the last 30 years and this guy that's been a part of it. So enjoy. Uh, before you go, don't forget, make sure you leave us a rating or review on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, however you're listening, and tell this tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you, and have a great Thanksgiving. All right, Denny. Well, welcome to the score. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It's a rare pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure. <laughs> now, on this podcast, on this episode today, I really want to talk to you and ask you some more personal questions that we haven't necessarily got to in the magazine before. I feel like, especially between you and I, we're working like on the we're on the grind so much trying to figure all this stuff out, and we're always talking day to day operations. So I want to kind of take a step back and, and get some answers for, that haven't been used before, and and kind of go along if that's okay with you. <laughs> you sure you're ready for that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm never sure if I'm ready for one of our conversations, no matter what it happens to be that we're talking about. <laughs> um, all right. So getting started before you came along, there was really no team roping industry. It was a whole bunch of 
individual producers in backyard arenas. And now we have this massive industry that supports all of us. And, and, you know, and then barrel racing and bull riding followed your lead and kind of broke out into single event organizations. How do you feel about being a legend in this world? That's really easy. You know, I I go to these ropings and, and guys come up to me and they see that I'm kind of in charge and, and they'll introduce themselves and, uh, and uh, they'll say, now, <clears throat> who are you and what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, and, and then again, on the other side of it, as a father, uh, you know, your, your girl's not that old yet, but you'll find out that whenever uh, you're too dumb to talk to the, t- to the teachers or you're, you're not quite sharp enough to talk to their friends until, you're, until maybe they're in their 20s or something like that, well, uh-huh. you get humble real quick. <laughs> And then on the uh-huh. other side of it is I had Connie on the other side of that too, you know, cause, uh, you know, Connie came into the business. She was a manager. She was the youngest manager in Honeywell Corporation. And I don't know if you know Honeywell Corporation, but there's over a hundred thousand employees and she was the youngest one. So she came in packing credentials and she's kind of been the backbone of the whole operation. And, and, uh, and so whenever they go to talking about my deal, she, she, she kind of gives me that look, you know, that lets me know right quick that she knows she knows who was packing a lot of the load yeah i feel like all those great businesses like steve jobs had business partners and and there were people somehow one got more known than the other sort of thing with bill gates and 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 the like so i think that's kind of connie's role she certainly has done a lot of the work well and that's the, the thing you know i'm not trying to raise a debate between the sexes or anything like that but the reality of it is is that if Connie was my partner and she was a man, there'd be a lot of debate going on right now on who was the most important and who did the most. So, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's something that we know that we talk about. Yeah, that's awesome. She's certainly, she's a force. She's so impressive. <laughs> um, so we thought you mentioned it just briefly about when you started this business. You were just putting on some benefit ropings for the New Mexico cattle growers. But I've heard stories that there was, you know, there's a reason for that. There's a reason you're kind of the handy, developing the handicap system. Tell me about the, the accident and then what came after the accident and caused you to start this handicap system. Well, I had a bad accident in the, in the mid-70s, and, uh, and I crushed both of my elbows real bad. At that time, they didn't have prosthesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the doctors started coming through. I had, I think, six of them. The first six that came through want to amputate both arms at the elbow. And I finally, the seventh guy came through and he saved my arms. But for the longest time, they were kind of in a permanent L, and uh, which made team roping a little bit difficult. And it became pretty apparent to me that handicaps were going to be pretty important if I was going to ever rope again. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that self-interest played a, played a large role in, in handicapping. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that. And so... The ropings were already there. You just had to develop the handicap system and kind of bring it all together. Is that the chicken or the egg sort of question? Which came first, the the ropings that became the USTRC or the handicaps? Well, I I was running team roping in New Mexico, and any of these groups, whether it was ACTRA or or Digger Howard in Texas or whoever that were doing doing, uh, ropings, had to have some sort of handicap system to handle the team ropings. 
And, and we did that in New Mexico. Now, the great idea came up, well, what if we go ahead and do a, an event that is the national championship and we bring ropers from every state into one arena? So it was all about the event to start with, the main primary idea. But then the next thing that had to happen after that was is it had to be, there had to be a way to tear those state lines down and get them in. So I'd say the event came first. And then the handicaps, but later on, once we got going within a couple of years, it was obvious that the handicaps were going to make the industry explode because that was what was going to, going to make it run. All right. Well, let's then let's talk handicaps before we get too far into this podcast, get, get all the really tricky stuff out of the way. I know that there is a real dichotomy among you guys that are on the inside of the business. And we talk about classifications all the time. After all these years, it is still the thing that ropers talk about the most. Tell me about that. Well, you know, team, team ropers don't see it the way that we see it. Now, the way that we see it, just as I described, is the it's the thing that's made this sport so great. I mean, we see these guys at the NFR and and I can remember when a lot of them were 10, 11, 12 years old and and they get to win all along and it encourages and it encourages people to train and do all these things and basically it makes everything go that's how we see it now from a roper's perspective they don't quite see it that way because in their mind their handicap is the reason they don't win more and their handicap is the reason that the other guy beat them Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get to a place to where you you can make them uh, feel like that it's a it's a great thing because it's such a personal issue with them about them and about their kids and and uh, whatever. So that's the the real reason that uh, you, you know that you, you you hear them talk about the double edged sword. It's the greatest thing and the worst thing depending on who you're talking to. Seventy million dollars a year in purses to these guys right now versus when we got going and and it just mind-boggling yeah now because handicaps are so controversial it seems like there are always people that think they can do it better that we're not doing it good enough that 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 you're not the triad ustrc whoever is isn't doing a good enough job at it how how have you dealt with that in your career i guess and well i don't have to now much you know I, now i have had a little bit of role in there since january whenever uh, you know i've been asked to try to come up with a way to to get all the associations involved in it where i don't think we'll get it to where it's a nonprofit but it is going to be a it is now a separate third mm-hmm. uh, third party entity where uh, the computer center analyze the statistics and then they hand it over and the, if the organizations want to veto they can veto mm-hmm. but but the reality of it is is that nobody really wants to do it so i'm always amazed that anyone comes up to start with and want to but it happens and you've got these regional associations that feel like they can get advantage if they drop lots of numbers and they're competing on handicaps if we give you a lower number you'll come to our event and of course that's a temporary thing that happens there's i've seen i've watched it for 30 years and i mean it works okay for a year or two but after a while you've got to make it fair to everybody and and uh, and you're either going to wind up with a different scale or you're going to wind up with a with uh, numbers that are really out of whack but right now you know what's going on there's there's one out there that's come on board now and and they're going to do basically the same analysis that 
uh, Gary Porthris had put into the company. The company that does the contracts for all of us was a company that Gary set up. And in case your listeners don't know, Gary Porthris came on with us 30 years ago. And and he's kind of an unknown entity for the most part, but was pretty instrumental in the early years on setting up scales and all this and all these algorithms and these analyzing points and everything that, that are in play right now are things that he invented. And, and even this deal, I mean, you're hearing a lot of talk right now about split timing because he developed speed indexes a few years ago as one of the items that studied. And now what they're doing with split time is, is they're going in and saying, um, we're just going to measure the header only till the point where he turns the steer, and then we're going to measure the healer only from the point where the clock is stopped on the header and starts for him so we can measure the true speed of the header and the healer. Well, the reality of that is is that that is splitting hairs. That's only one. Speed is only one issue. And, and me, I'm not big on on it being overweighted, that speed being overweighted on this thing because I still think the proof's in the pudding. It's how often a guy can put four steers together and go, they can go in there and collect a check, and that's that's a, a, a better scale of uh, of roping. But you know, it's who knows. I mean, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. the you know, there's going to be different ones try to market different things and and let them. But you know, the problem that I see is, and it's the problem that 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 the old USTRC got into, is, is the cost of keep maintaining a handicap system for the whole United States and basically the whole world. An international system is about a million dollars a year. And you have to be a certain scale or size or have a, a large number of associations involved to be able to even pack that load. So I've always been pretty skeptical when guys say they're going to take it over. You know, I'll say to them, well, you don't know what you're getting into. And if you do do it good, and if you are successful, great. We're going to let you have it. And we're going to, <laughs> you know, you, you take it, baby, because we'll let you have it. Mm-hmm. And it, so, so that's, uh, in fact, that was the reason World Series came back to USTRC. Uh, we had been very, very uh, strong competitors. Uh, let, let's just say we didn't like each other very much. And and four handicaps, we came back together because we saw that it was necessary, and we could all save a little bit of money if we did that. So, so there was a lot of decisions made that were for the better good of the industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now, on on the same subject of statistics and speed indexes and and all that, you've made some comments about probabilities and, and the odds and the kind of the gambling aspect of team roping. Um, Tell me about it. We've, we've talked a little bit about it off the record before, but t- tell me a little bit more about it. Well, through a lot of different anal- analysis, we've kind of come up with, and I say we, everybody in the industry that's done this, particularly Gary, came up with the number that the the odds against you winning when you leave your house are 9 to 1 against you. And there's a lot of ways that they measure that statistically, but the the reality from a cowboy point of view is is that at the end of every roping that there's only about 10% of the ropers left in each rope and this that are that are available to win the money. And so that 9 to 1 pretty well holds true. So if you're you're in Vegas and they tell you what the odds are on the blackjack table, uh, you can pretty well believe they've run enough millions and millions of run that they're not lying to you. Well, it's the same in team roping. 
everyone really wants to weigh their skill, but the reality is is that the laws of, of the odds and the probabilities are are going to tell you. And you know, the funny thing about that is, is that's the same whether you're in the eight roping or you're in the open roping. Now, open ropers don't want to hear that, but it's 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 the truth, with the exception of the top three to five teams in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the top three to five teams in the world, you know, you take a top team there and, and uh, that top team will, they'll be getting in the money 70 to 80% of the time. And so that's the reason why, you know, you'll see all the social media stuff where they're griping about the way this guy paid this or what the added money is or all of that. Because when you're winning 70, 80% of the time, you believe that's your money. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does have a direct impact on you. Now, the rest of those guys, not so much. They can buy into that and pretend that they're winning seventy percent of the time, but no, that's 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 not the real that's not the real deal. Mm-hmm. So those are the 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 main you know aspects of that thing. And and the other side of it is the the big number. The big number is we have guys that will call in all the time and say, you need to help me with the computer center to get my number down because I'm, I'm not holding my money together. I'm only winning 70, 80% of the money. Well, the truth of the matter is, is every weekend, only 5% win. In every rope and only 5% win, 95% losers. So you ask the question, how can we make every roper in the United States win 80, 90% of everything they spend when 95% are losing? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not possible. And these computers analyze these return on investments and they run medians on each number, on each number of header, on each number of healer. And it can tell you what the medium return on investment is for every number in scale. So mm-hmm. you, you might say a five elite header wins 55% of the time on the median. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. I don't know how that happens. You know, I just said, you know, 95% lose. Well, maybe that particular number might be stronger or something. You just don't know. But, mm-hmm. but that's, uh, that's another one of those statistics that, that the contractors don't want out there. You know, I don't think they want everybody to go, well, 95% lose and, and uh, the odds are nine to one against you. Damn, let's go play golf. <laughs> you, you know, but that's yeah. not how team ropers think. You know, mm-hmm. Team ropers are competitive and, and they like those odds. And we love to compete. So that's why we do it. Don't forget, this podcast is supported by U.S. Rider, the premier equestrian roadside assistance program in the industry. You've heard me talk about it every episode since the start. And now I want to give you a promo code so you all can subscribe and save money too. You get 14 months for the price of 12 with the promo code PC718. That is P as in Paul, C as in Cat, 718. You only get it if you're listening to the score. This is a score exclusive promo code. So head on over to usrider.org and subscribe. Now, did you? And you're, while you're talking here, you're you're throwing out so much computer info. What was your learning curve in the computer and the statistics department? Did you already have a pretty good handle on statistics when you started uh, this, yeah, and you yeah, had to learn the computers? No osmosis, and, that, and that's <laughs> another that's another thing. You know, I mean, when we started, you got to understand when I started in the association business, and we were do magazines or, and I'll talk about the magazine in a minute, but. 
if we were going to do uh, magazine address labels, um, we had a machine that looked like a leg press at your gym. It was called an addressograph. And it had a big leg press where you put both feet on it. And they put an l- aluminum plate in it. And you would type in, had a typewriter on it, and you would type in the get- guy's name and address on it. And then you push with both legs, and it would stamp their address in that aluminum plate. And then you had a folder that held all of those. And then when we went to do a mailing, those plates would run up against the magazine or the mm-hmm. newsletter and emboss the the address on it. So I'm talking about before floppy disk. <laughs> so so when I say osmosis, I, I really, really mean osmosis. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, is that computer system, these these laptop computers or desktop computers, is what allowed these associations to grow because it gave us the ability to manage these databases and reach large number of people. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, and then another thing that I think probably has helped some growth in the last decade would be your World Series barrier. Tell me about how how that came into fruition. Well, I will, but, you know, it, it's funny. You just asked me about the computers and the technology and all that from point A to point Z and where we are now where you can basically get your draw on your cell phone and and you can watch the rope and what's going on, what they're seeing up there on the deal on your phone and all this stuff like that. Well, the barrier system was the same thing. My very first rope in, 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 at the Lazy E, I had three rope barriers. We were running a 1,000 teams, and, and at that time, it was done like rodeo. No problem, have 10 or 15 in a performance. But you go try to pull the barrier a 1,000 times in one day, we had to platoon people at that. <laughs> and the, the string on the, on the left side of the header box would be two feet high. It looked like a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. from all the broken string over there from the from the barrier. Mm-hmm. So we went from that to a hard switch, which was two wands. They were basically whips mm-hmm. that were in front of the deal, and they, and they basically triggered a, a hard switch that would turn on or off the barrier. And then from that, we went to electric eyes, uh, and they were very poor. They were some of the very first electric eyes that were used in security business. And then from, and, and let me not miss the most controversial of all of the, of the barrier uh, things that we did. S.C. Mayo was, was a designer on all that stuff. Digger would test them in Texas. And then when we got the bugs out, we'd test them. We'd bring them to USTRC and take them national. So uh, uh, the, the uh, World Series barrier was kind of, oh, uh, back to that that point was the the healing barrier mm-hmm. we, we got to a point to where the uh, high shape became the name of the game everyone would get out there and and they would uh, push those cattle into that left fence well they started running so many cattle that's why we had to get into the uh, healing barrier mm-hmm. so but oh my gosh everyone had gotten used to that healing barrier and you would have thought that that i mean it was it was blasphemous to take the way that to take away riding high shape. Did everybody so, from the open guys on down hate all the, the way there? down? And that yeah. was the problem. You know, you had guys at the very bottom of the scale and our bottom roping, uh, mashing cattle into that left fence. In in the idea, it was ridiculous because they'd push cattle into that left fence and then track them fifteen jumps. It was mm-hmm. it was ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but 
But anyway, back to the World Series barrier. Bob Bob uh, Welch had called me on the phone, and he wanted to know uh, which was the best barrier system, a rope pull or an electric eye, and the pros and cons of each. And I just told Bob, I said, Bob, it's they're, he was going to do an article on it. And I said, they're both horrible. I mean, they're, they're built off a 1950 PRCA deal that was merely set up to give the animal a head start. Now we've turned it into this great skill that someone's got to learn to be a champion and and if you can learn how to score you can and you wrote you know it's a great advantage and i said i i've just never believed that that guesswork of letting the animal start and the horse start and guessing when they got there at the same time was should be a part of a roping contest i think that we ought to do it like nascar where we got a light that's coming down or something like that and and the light goes green and everybody goes and and we get put the animal out there where we want him to have the head start. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And so that's what we did. We came up with a, a light system, uh, and it was called the no barrier system. And it worked pretty good for six months, and then the Cowboys all figured out how to beat it. And so the, the World Series barrier was the next evolution in that thinking. But the, the real reason that I got on the World Series deal, the South Point Arena is only 200 feet long and when we put 20 foot of shoot in there we were 180 feet and i needed to be able to have a a world-class competition on 180 foot arena Mm -hmm. so i needed to even out the start and the world series barrier was the the um, uh, the answer to that and now it's become norm because what it did was it it took away the advantage that the guys that could get the really top end horses could uh could have and basically gave the gave it to everyone mm-hmm. they let you know made all the horses you know, have the same start and, and made it fairly even and, yeah. and of course everybody's complaining right now that that the uh, the kids have figured out how to ride that and it's making the ropes too fast and all that well that's not necessarily the case i mean the, the case right now on on that is there's two very distinct roping differences out there it's a clash of two a clash of styles so to speak we had it back in the in the in the early years of Roy Cooper when he switched over in the calf roping and cha- basically changed the whole face of calf roping speed williams style of roping which was to be extremely consistent and reach a long ways and consistently catch those cattle before they could run has now become the norm and mm-hmm. you've got all of these teachers teaching these kids how to do it. So we've got a whole generation coming in right now that have learned to reach. And we've got a whole generation of baby boomers going out that are still going to ride to the hip. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to balance that with the handicap system. And it's difficult. And that's back to that original comment about split times. Mm-hmm. That was really the reason that we delved off in split times was to try to identify the differences between those two generations. Yeah, there's definitely two two generations. Even just at the open level, the open guys talk about the distinction. I mean, it's not like all the open guys are falling into one category or the other. It's certainly split. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, with with all of these innovations that you've had over the years and all of the the work that you've done to create the team roping industry. Has anybody ever tried to scoop you out of the team roping industry and take you 
to something bigger or better or make something bigger or better using your background? Gosh, are you asking, have I had other job offers? Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Has anybody ever tried to take you from us? I have. I have had some over the years, but I think probably I've put them all off. We're having too much fun. I, the the tough came by when the PBR was, he came by and he said, uh, Hey, can we do what you've done with Team Rope and with Bull Riding? And, oh, yeah, absolutely. You can sell tickets. And and uh, so his next question was, well, would you help us? Would you run it for us? And and uh, and I still remember my answer. Oh, no, I'm too busy. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the other one was the PRCA. A good friend, Malcolm Baldridge, was, was he's Secretary of Commerce. He was real involved with the PRCA. And the, when they went to set up the Commissioner Rodeo, I was – real young and and still with the cattlemen's association and he tried to talk me he talked me into putting my application in and everything and of course he passed away before they got down to the interviews but they because mac was on my he was recommending me they went ahead and ran the interview on it and they called me up to uh, colorado springs up there and i i went and met eldon evans over at the antlers hotel mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll never forget it because i walked in and i sat down and he was very cordial and very nice and he explained he did the orientation session and he explained everything about the prca and what the problems were and what you'd face if you got the job and he did all the talking explaining and so before he started the interview he uh looked at me and he said you know they tell me that you're a really really bright kid and he said, I guess my question is, is if you're so damn smart, why do you need a job? <laughs> and I looked at him and I really didn't have an answer for him. You know, I, I, I said, well, Mr. Evans, I said, you know, that's, I don't know how to answer that question. So I guess we might as well just quit right here. And, and we did. He thanked me, slapped me on the back, paid for lunch. I left. <laughs> and by the time I... By the time I got to Raton Pass, I had already, I was still, I was two years out. I figured I'd give my, my uh, resignation in, in about six months and do the final year at Cattle Growers and then start USTRC. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much. <laughs> now, we talked about the past a little bit. Let's kind of talk about the future with the American Cowboy 10, which is kind of a new concept for the sport. How's that going? And, and tell me about the plans for growth with it. Well, you know, it, it, it is new and it isn't new. You know, I started doing what I call shave-off money to move uh, into ropings, gosh, 30 years ago. And mm-hmm. we went, we pulled off various amounts of money, 5%, or 3%, I think was the old shoot, shootout fund or 4%. And then we would save up and add a million dollars at the end of the year. And that worked for a long time, but eventually ropers weren't impressed with a million dollars added, believe it or not. And so it kind of quit working at some point and there have been other outfits that have done it over the years some would hold 40 percent or 50 percent or 30 percent and um i think all-star team are open up there last year held out five percent for their finals and i hear other outfits are going to go hold out five or ten or whatever but you know my thought was let's don't beat around the bush let's just go ahead and pool the money let's pay everyone four or five times their money in preliminary payment and then pay our losers in our match and then pool all that money together and have 20 teams roping for a few hundred thousand. And we started in late June, and I've predicted that we're going to have about oh, 400,000 in the pot 
and then uh, uh, we've already paid out about 170,000 in preliminary payments altogether. By the end of this, the first six months should produce about 600,000 total payoff, including the preliminary and the and the uh, uh, deal. And we're going to give them TV and put them in front of the rodeo crowd and all that. So I think that it's going to be an exciting thing for them. But but I do think that when they see that they can do a $200 investment for a million-dollar return, there are going to be a segment of people in this country, team ropers, that are going to play. I understand that there's a whole lot of them say, no, I'm there for instant gratification. I'm going to go enter and rope right now for 80% of my money, and I'm not interested in that. But there are a group of them say, I'm going to do both. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to do that one, and then I'm going to bet on the big pot at the same time at the same time and and uh, but i think we're doing good and i, I you know I, I really hope this is one of those deals where i we were only out two months and there were already three outfits trying to copy what we were doing and i hope we can get this one off the ground before they don't water it down so yeah. badly all over that it can't succeed you know that's what i'm that's what i'm worried about yeah and, and i feel like with the team roping community so much is gossip my goodness that um, there's so much rumor that goes around and, and people talk. Um, what have been some misconceptions about the American Cowboy time? Oh, that they're going to rope against the open guys down there. And I mean, that's the big one. You, you, why would you drive all the way down there and rope against the pros? And, and of course, the other side of it is, is that, that RFD itself caused a little bit of the confusion because they allowed an American uh, qualifier for junior ropers. Mm-hmm. And that's being done at a different place, and there, and and then believe it or not, the I, you know I really like this idea that the breakaway ropers are going to be in, but they went and called their deal World Series of Breakaway Rope and American Qualifier. So now you're seeing these ads, and it's got that American logo on there, and they got to look and see if it's junior and see if it's breakaway and see where it's mm-hmm. at. It's what I say. I'm just afraid that the water's pretty murky. You know, and and so that's the biggest yeah problem. Now, as far as the rumor mill goes, people ask me all the time, from the pros to the amateurs. You know, they think that corporate America took over team roping. They ask about AIM all the time, um, and it's kind of like this confusing entity that nobody knows a lot about. But but you and I, we serve the same master in that respect. How? But. But it's a little bit different. How involved are AIM in the everyday business of team roping? Or how involved is AIM? Well, I'll go back a little bit further than that and go back to 1998 when I sold the Florida Capital Partners, who then sold Ridge Capital. Um, since 1998, uh, basically the big roping operations have been owned by investor groups. So... This is not something new, you know. You're you're mm-hmm. going you're you're looking at a lot of years. I mean, you just flat are that they've gone. But AIM is a good group, and they they don't think that way. They're they're not interested in the roping business at all. They they are interested in lifestyle groups. They mm-hmm. want to take what people are interested in and work on all the things that the uh, the magazine and the and the training and the videos and all that stuff that makes the people that have that passion um, have that passion. So basically the, the roping business is the, is a lost leader. It's a carrot for everything else that goes on. 
Mm-hmm. And and do I think there's someone somewhere in some investor group or in some three piece suit that wants to get down and push cattle in the arena? That's a joke. That's not mm-hmm. going to happen. That is not going to happen. It's always going to be run by cowboys. And I, I'll, I'm going to throw this in because it's one of my biggest hee-haws out there. For the last 30 years, invariably, there's an association out there that's going to put buy cowboys for cowboys. And I see that, and I want to die laughing because, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's like I'm going to put on a rope and for free. I'm going to do this for you guys for free. No, anyone that gets in this business, it's a lot of work and it's very risky. When I came into this business, there was no one here that could make a living putting on team ropings 100%. And when I left the first time, there were only five. And when I came back, there were only six. And that's because that's all that the industry can stand is five or six people that can make a living in this at any given time. So that idea that there's someone out there going to forecast that a labor union, uh, a nonprofit group, I can, I can tell you the nonprofit groups that have tried to get into this business and how successful they've been. And it's not been very good. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, it does yeah. not work that way. Now, 30 years later, this is 2019. It's supposed to officially be the last year of your contract. I've heard, I've heard rumors about that too, Denny, but um, that's what they say, that this is the last year of your contract officially. What, what are your goals for the last year of your team roping career, maybe? Or are you going to be involved in team roping after this? Tell me about it. I, I'm, I'm sure I'll always be involved in team roping in some form or fashion, but probably not from a, from a um a boss standpoint, you know, probably more from an advisory consultant kind of approach and not just to aim, but also, you know, I've got a lot of friends that put on a lot of ropings. I had 92 partners in USTRC contractors and in world series, we have 36 contractors that put on rope. And and I consider all these, those people to be friends and family. And and I intend to keep assisting them with, with their operations but so I and I doubt I could ever see where I wouldn't at, at a minimum have an opinion about what's going on and 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 probably and probably more. But in the last year, I said when I left with USTRC that I made one major mistake when I sold USTRC, and that was that I should have made the handicap system a nonprofit and allowed that to be controlled by all the associations. Now. My comment that a nonprofit funded by itself may or may not be doable, but in this final 12 months, I want to go back to what I didn't do the first time and put handicaps in a position to where no association has to bear the total load or the total responsibility for that international system. In in my opinion, it needs to be set up where whoever comes into the business can have access to the software and can have access to the handicaps. And that's going to be, and, and, and software, you know, back to all the companies that are in there, it really doesn't make any difference on that. They're all going to do the, You're all going to have the bells and whistles before long. And, and I'm sure that whichever of those companies wind up with the contract over the long haul, it's going to be, um, it's not going to make a difference 
it, what's going to make a difference is is that the associations don't have to bear the the brunt of the negativity over handicaps. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's fascinating. Oh, and okay. Well, we're getting close to wrapping up, Denny. But I really want to know, and I hope I. I can't help but think you've got a lot to say, but what are you the most proud of in your career? I've been careful with that. You know, I, I, I've been careful. I, I, you know, there's a, um, a lot of people that, that were involved in what we, what we did here that, that, um, we don't mention that, you know, have been instrumental all the way along the line. And, and for me to get out and, talk about what I'm proud of it kind of negates their input or influence they had you know I mean you, you and I could go to naming them and it'd sound like an award show on the TV but I won't do that but but I guess what I would say is that when you put things in perspective you realize how little chance there is in your life to to do work that can be significant other than you know other than for your own personal satisfaction but to be able to do that twice is just crazy. And obviously, over time, you start to realize that that was more God than you. And and uh, so I've always tried to pass on all the information, experiences we've had to other contractors and anyone wanting to be involved in the sport or other, or really the other horse sports. So, so I'm most proud that the ripple effect of doing what we love has benefited so many people and so many different ways and horse business and cow business and trailers and ropes and saddles and you name it. I just, uh, I, I see it. That makes me smile. Mm, Absolutely. I think, I think there is a reason I have a job and I think it, your, your team roping industry probably had something to do with that if I were to guess. So, well, it's not really mine anymore. You know, it's everybody's, (laughs) you know, I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed it, but it's not, uh, it's not my industry anymore. I think there was a time where where I thought it was, but that was I was a long time ago and, and a lot of foolish years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Denny. I sure appreciate it, and we will see you here in just a few short weeks in Las Vegas. We're gonna have a good one there for you. Another, another barn burner. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this interview, spending your time with the staff at the Team Roping Journal. It means so much to us. You guys are follow us on Instagram, you follow us on Facebook, you're reading our website in huge, massive numbers, um, and you are, of course, listening to the score and reading the magazine. We do this all for you. If there's anything you don't like that you want to see more of, that you love, that you couldn't make it without, please let us know. My email address is cshafer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, at aimmedia.com. So that's cshafer at aimmedia.com. I love to hear from you. I read everything that you guys send me. I read every comment on social media. So does everybody on our staff. And it's really important for us to hear from you all. Um, So that also means leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And make sure if you see me at a roping, if you see me at a, a rodeo, reach out, say hi, talk my ear off. I don't care. I love to hear from you all. Thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving and a great holiday season, and we'll see you at the NFR.